It's episode 78 of Honestly Unbalanced, where we chat to people that have tried to make your life a little bit better. And this week, we chat to Seattle-based yoga teacher, Carling Harps, and we chat about functional movement, building community, losing identity as a new mom, and freestyling students, plus a lot more. So Carling has been teaching yoga since 2012. She's a mobility specialist, a registered pre-postnatal teacher, uh, and birth jeweler. She's a lifelong lover of movement education, has spent the last decade studying yoga, sports mobility, women's advocacy, and birth, and has learned from the most incredible range of teachers, from Annie Carpenter, Philip Askew, uh, and plenty, plenty plenty more. She's a founder of the Awakening Yoga Teacher Training Academy and Carling has travelled the world offering workshops and facilitating trainings in that method and she also, as I said, offers classes in her Seattle-based yoga studio, Commune Yoga. As a mother, teacher, female founder, Carling strives to bring a sense of curiosity, conscious connection and empowering education to all of her teachings. Uh, you might already follow Carling without knowing about it under Carling Nicole on Instagram and lots of other places. Uh, and then just some little little bonuses for you. First, you can get 10% off Lifeform Yoga Mats with code HUSTLER, H-U-S-L-A-R, and 25% off our platform, uh, either a year membership or actually just rolling forever with code HONEST25, all caps. Carling is actually coming to Manchester next year in the UK. Uh, you can find her well at Space in the Mill, uh, but it's via a yoga studio. Uh, they're just renting space in the mill. If you head to Carling's website, I'm sure you'll find that. And I am also in Manchester this weekend, actually, depending on where you're listening. So <laughs> I am in Manchester on January the 21st and 22nd. Uh, so maybe I'll catch you if you listen to this in time. You can find all the details on my website. Uh, if you're interested, I've got a teacher training starting very soon. Well, in May, so that's not actually that soon. With Mia Togo and Michael Wong, which you can find out about my on my website. And Holly has a sound healing teacher training starting soon, or a few of them, one in Malmo in Sweden, uh, one coming in person to London at Tri Yoga, and some online, maybe some more places that I forgot. So check out hollyhustler.com for more info. Honestly, I'll let you enjoy the podcast now. I watched, I watched the cutest video today of you, of the affirmation oh, yeah? stuff. The aff- oh, that's so sweet. Oh. Oh, so this was just for our listeners, kind of the morning affirmations between you and your little one. How old is your little one? Like two or three? She's three and some change, almost three and a half. Amazing. And it was, what was the affirmation? I love my body. I lo- I'm, I'm smart and strong. Smart and strong. And I can do anything. When did this start? You know, I've never been a big affirmations person. Like in my past life, I used to be like manifestation affirmations. Like it's a bunch of woo woo. That's bullshit. Like, you know, life is tough. Get a helmet kind of person. And go on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I was always like that. But, you know, since having a kid and watching them just like come into themselves, all those things that you're like, I don't know, maybe that would have been helpful. No one ever like proposed this to me. Maybe I should think about how I talk to m- or how I talk to myself from a young age instead of, mm. you know, hitting 25 and 30 and being like, oh, that was problematic the way I spoke to myself my entire life. So now I so with her, we do it every single morning. And I kind of started it as a thing that maybe she would like or maybe she'd just see me do it as a modeling. And she stops at the mirror and she's like, 
we haven't done our affirmations yet. If she does them and she looks at herself or if she catches me doing them with her and I'm looking at her instead of myself, she tells me, mommy, look at yourself. Oh, wow. Which is like really powerful. I mean, it made, it's made me do my affirmations So she day. understands not only what they're doing, but what they're meant to be for as well. Yeah, she gets that she's talking to herself. She did it the other day. We were riding her little bike. She's got a little, not got pedals, but it's like a balanced bike. And, you know, she only lasts like three or four blocks and I'm kind of jogging beside her, but she's going up a hill. She was like, I can't, you have to push me. It's too hard. And I said, what if we just tell ourselves, I'm strong and I can do it. I'm strong and I can do it. And she literally took herself up this hill. I'm strong and I can do it. I'm strong and I can do it. Up the whole hill. I'm just like, maybe it would have changed my life if I would have done this, started this at age three. I think there's a lot more awareness, isn't there, about this self-talk now. I think coaches have always used it, even sports coaches. But I, I was listening to a punk band the other week have you heard of the idols i think maybe they're more uk but you have heard of them and one of their lyrics Mm -hmm. is if someone spoke to you the way you spoke to you i'd punch them in the face love yourself (laughs) amazing lyrics like even post-punk pans uh are talking about this idea of self-talk and so have you used have you noticed an effect on yourself as well through doing it a little bit you know i have i've always struggled with anxiety and like a lot of catastrophizing and just like Mm. kind of survivally stuff in my life and in my psyche and i think when i was maybe like 25 or 26 i was living in portland in oregon and uh i was home alone a lot i was working but i was alone a lot during this time and i was just in a like rabbit hole with my thoughts and struggling and i just ended up in this world of like finally, finally clicking this idea that you're not your thoughts, like the shit that goes on in here, the chitta vritti, that's like all the monkey mind, all the things we talk about in yoga, like, it's just not you. Sometimes I had to disconnect from like, sometimes it's just random synapses. Sometimes it's nothing more. It's not a deeper thing. It's not a dream journal. It's not anything. Sometimes it's just weird intrusive thoughts. And then this recurred as a parent, because you get a lot of intrusive thoughts Mm -hmm. that are kind of scary, that like, Sometimes it's just a synapse. It's the thing. And it's not, doesn't have to be deeper than that. So then I tried to like figure out where the differentiation was between stuff that is just random noise. Like what's the static and what's the signal. And that made a big difference for me. Like, okay, I can put more positive input into the signal and I can like turn the volume down on the static and acknowledge that like some of it's just random shit and see what I can kind of like, instead of just you know pretending like it's not there maybe i can just crowd it out with more positive signal so how, and that made a big difference how do you talk about the cheetah vritti with your students like do you so cheetah vritti kind of wondering mind the thoughts are you are you telling your students to stop it or to pause it or to catch the difference between static and signal and realize when that's happening like how do you integrate that into your class and your teaching i'm definitely the the observe it acknowledge it and then what I think is the powerful, it's like the discernment side is you just get to decide what to do with it. And there's times in your life when you're going to decide to latch onto that static and it's going to take you down a rabbit hole and it's going to be hard. And then, you know, we need tools to figure out how to make a different decision. We don't just automatically know that we're even doing that or how to not do it. So I think it's a lot about like acknowledging that it's there. Maybe you give it five seconds or five minutes of like, you know, value. And then you get to make a choice. You get to discern or use a tool or you move your body or you take some action or you do something to like shift the narrative. Mm. Um, but if you just try to make it go away, like that's, that's, it I won't, it won't possible it. ask. 
It's catching it. Yeah, it, it won't. And like, it's not going to. It's going to come up in the middle of some other, you know, in the middle of a meeting at 3 a.m. Like, it doesn't just, you know, it's not just going to poof because we don't want it to be there. Vic- Victor Frankl, you, you know, spoke a lot about that pause in between. The pause where something, you know, something happens to you, then that little gap before you react. And that's where all your power mm-hmm. lies, isn't it? And your mind's always going to wonder. Like, even if you've done yoga for 100 years, your mind will wonder. At some point, it's going to go somewhere. But you just catch it quicker. And then choose mm-hmm. a little. You make wiser decisions. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Like I, like we're all reactionary. Like we're all. I mean, that's the natural thing. Like you know, in yoga, we talk about like non-judgmental and all this stuff, and it's like that's a joke. Our whole life is making judgments that keep us safe and who to interact with and what to do with our time and our life. But that pause, like I think that's something that yoga and meditation really gives you, is the ability to actually notice that pause. Because most of us just blow right through it with like an immediate narrative or reaction and we don't actually like sit in the pause, that little retention. That's where all the like powerful stuff is. Then you get to make a decision instead of just like whatever your innate reaction is, which is not always what we hoped it would be. (laughs) It it doesn't seem like you were the most natural, not natural yogi, that's the wrong (laughs) phrase, but I'm interested (laughs) in in, like how you were drawn to yoga. Cause like, it doesn't seem like you were the most hippie or kind of drawn into, you know, lots of people do yoga because either they're part of that subculture of kind of like, you know, uh, building their self. No, I guess that's more recent, but part of that building yourself, building your body. But, equally in the old school it was either hippies people that have had some kind of trauma physically or mentally were the ones that did yoga like how did you end up getting dragged into it you know i always i do refer to yoga often as like a lonely hearts club like most people less so now because it's more mainstream than ever but for a long time like you didn't end up in yoga because like top 40 at least in the u.s like beer church and football worked for you like you ended up in yoga because there was you're Mm. looking for something else or you needed something else for me i was competitive my whole life i was in competitive sports i was i don't often share it it's a little bit embarrassing but i was a competitive cheerleader and all the way through college Uh, is that not not cool in america like we've got in the uk we've got no concept of that all we know is what we see is now cheer that tv show but is that not a cool club to be part of um I think it's cool if you're in it, but I, I loved it. I was deeply in love with it. And I was like heartbroken when I stopped doing it and everything. But it's also one of those things that has a stigma. And I always really struggled with this place of like, okay, I love this thing, moving my body, being a part of this team. I like sports. I like competition. I like that like grr, adrenaline pump of things. But also, like, I'm a big nerd at heart. Like, I have a lot. I have like Star Wars tattoos and like, just like, I'm way on the other end. And I always wanted to be more accepted in this kind of like undercurrent place that I actually felt much more comfortable than in, it was just like this mix. And I didn't really know where I belonged a lot of times. And so I I always kind of felt in between those two worlds, you know. And what, and then somehow yoga pulled you in? Yeah. So uh, yoga was, I, in college, I was cheerleading and I was wrapping up that portion of my life. And I didn't know what to do with my body that wasn't punishment. Like I had spent my whole life again in, in sports and in cheerleading and a little bit of dance where every aspect of moving your body is because it's for performance. It's for someone else's consumption, mm. right? It's to look a certain way. I had coaches that I won't even repeat the things that were said to us as, as young adults. And 
I had no idea how to not look at movement through a calorie punishment weight loss lens. And uh, yoga was the first time. And all credit to my father who'd been trying to get me to do yoga my whole life. <laughs> but I went with a roommate to a Bikram class. And it was the first time I was like, oh, part of me thought mm, you could be good at this. You could do it. And the other part of me was like, looked around the room and was like, no one cares. And it was so freeing. It was like the first time I did something that was like, I felt good. And there was no like calorie counter on the treadmill. There was no coach looking after me yelling. Like it was, it was a very freeing experience. And I kind of like just never looked back. That's kind of, that's a soft entry from kind of extreme sport. Is it not extreme sport, but kind of to yoga in the big gram. Like when my experience with Bikram is actually is slightly competitive and there is, you know, there's, there's a mirror and everyone's kind of looking at each other in the mirror. Like mm-hmm. I often tell this little anecdote where I went to my f- a Bikram class and I was at that point, you know, quite an experienced yogi and quite bendy. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, I'm, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go to a new Bikram studio and like not make any kind of presence. So I kind of walked in with like a towel with a clown on it. You know, looked like a like an amateur, like some rugby shorts and a boxing shirt. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Who's new? Who's new to?" They, I didn't lie. Who's new to the studio? I so, you know, put my hand up. You know, I, I'm new to the studio. Mm-hmm. And so maybe go in the back row. I was like, "No, I'm. I'll stay here." And you could see like the other young men at the time in the mirror, like look at me, like looking down on me. But then I would inhale and then take it to the extreme <laughs> and i should have done this and then you know they'd hug their leg to the chest and i would put my leg behind my head after a few <laughs> and you you could I'm see that here. there was tangible anger i shouldn't have done it <laughs> this is a long time ago i'm not that person now but i find like bikram is still have that competitive edge which maybe that's that was a nice draw in for you it was. i think it was the interstitial place i think if i had just walked into like a you know, into a general vinyasa, no mirrors, like a softer hatha setting or an Iyengar class, I don't think I would have stayed. I don't think I would have lasted. I needed that little like to still kind of stoke that fire. And then that was like the gateway drug into like, oh, what if we did like no mirrors? What if we did this? You know, what? and took me into all the rest of the like introspection of the practice or the exploration of all the various lineages because I kind of rolled from Bikram to power yoga and then from there, I think I really felt confident enough and like, I like this thing. I will invest my time and my body and my mind into it to branch out and not be so attached to like what else it does for me in my life. Mm. It's like the, the gateway drug is often like the Bikram, the power, the rocket yoga. Mm-hmm. They're the way in, which yeah. is wonderful. I've got nothing against those styles of yoga. I think they're wonderful ways in and some people do it forever and do have an amazing life through mm-hmm. years of Bikram. I want to just a slight segue. So cheerleading... You know, similar to gymnastics, what you understand in America, like lots of extreme stretching, lots of powerful, like forced stretching with partner work, etc. And now you teach functional kind of rain conditioning, rain, range conditioning and alike. So at what point did you, I guess, stop glorifying flexibility? Like what point did you think, actually, this isn't all about going as far as I can? Because I think they're the te- from what, from gymnastics not gymnastics from cheerleading that happens and bikram yoga it's all about as going as deep as possible what, what was the turning point you know i would say yes those disciplines are absolutely about those things like gymnastics on the very extreme end some parts of cheerleading and bikram but i have never really been like that good at anything my whole life <laughs> i was <Okay>. always like <laughs> the person who made the team i was on the team i could win an award for like 
you know, most improved, happy to be here, volunteers for everything, like most charisma. But I've never been like this, the star of any of those things. And so for me, I think I always watched those around me in the disciplines. Like I watched people go to really big extremes. I watched them hurt themselves. I certainly have hurt myself and done things like that too. But I, I watched it with a different lens of like, okay, I'm not the best, but I need to be here every time. So I can't go, I can't get hurt. I can't, I need to be able to sub in at any moment. Mm. And so I think I always had a little bit of an eye for like, okay, how do I make this work for me? Like, what can I play to my advantage? Because I'm never going to be the most flexible, the strongest, the tiniest, the highest flipper, the best dancer, but I can be kindest, smiliest. I can know all the choreography. I can be here on time and I can really care about this. And so that gave me a little different, I think, lens that now I have watched myself mirror in my career of like, I see all those things. I appreciate them. And there are times and places like when you're in a class and you're kind of like, I don't know, maybe I will try to put my foot behind my head today. (laughs) And then there's a lot of moments where you're like, yeah, I don't care. Right. And so I think I've always had a pretty good barometer of being able to be like, that's cool, but I'm fine. I'm okay. I have other, I can rest on other laurels or I have other things that I feel like are my strength. Um, So I never really felt the pressure of that. Okay, so part of it is just you were born with self-control of ego, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah, in that and sense. just like a straight up, like right in that like middle ground. I've always just been like middle of the bell curve, like, and so you know. And can you talk a little bit to like the functional range conditioning stuff? Because a lot of our listeners won't really have heard of that. Like, they might have heard me talk about balancing flexibility and strength, but not in the terms that you described there. Could you talk a little bit to it? Yeah. So I teach mobility, and I think mobility is like a big buzzword currently or late, you know, um, and functional movement. And I think of it as a very, although certainly it lends itself very well to yoga and there's a lot that we are doing in an asana practice that is, you know, there's permeation, but functional range conditioning is part of this like larger systems called functional range systems. It's a lot of, you know, what are acronyms, Mm. uh, and a kind of group approach to it called kin stretch. And a lot of it is just sort of systematizing the way that we approach the balance between passive range of motion and active range of motion. So in yoga, we do so much passive range of motion. We do a lot of like deep stretching or we're in things with the weight of our body or in something like a shtanga, a teacher mm. with big hands on assists. In Iyengar, we've got sandbags and dowels and like we're always doing this more extreme thing. And it's not to say that that's like, I don't believe in the demonization of passive stretching. Um, but we need to acknowledge that they're not the same. So like just because you can put your foot behind your head doesn't mean that your hip is working at its best capacity to carry you through life. I think mm. we watched this trend or is, is happening now of like, you know, the era of injuries in the yoga world or things as trends go through. And I've watched many teachers of that are like were seniors to us in our kind of generation need hip replacements because they grew up in the Ashtanga world, right? And, and now knee, we knee have surgery. like our knee surgery and hip replacements lots of, and not to, lots of slip discs and then in the power yoga era which is kind of like i think where probably our generation like what i was raised up in a lot of shoulder stuff so much talk about repetitive injuries and like shoulder impingement stuff because it was so much more arm balancing handstand repetitive chaturangas things like that and so what drove me into the mobility world was this like one i just like learning and i like the body and i'm like very into interested my brain works that way it's very analytical and likes to problem solve and troubleshoot um 
So I would look at these things and, and think like, there's a better way. There's a better way for us to be doing this. And it's not that what this other thing is wrong. It's just not serving the purpose that we all think it is. So can we find a way? Like, how can I, how can I understand a little bit better when we do these things, when they happen, or when we move our bodies in asana, like, are we really doing what we think we're doing? And I think the answer a lot of times was not really. We're certainly doing something, but what often is being sold out in the yoga practice is just not quite accurate. And so I think that FRC and functional range and the world of mobility is a really important complement that allows people to get what they're looking for physically out of the practice, but do it with strength, resiliency, and approach that means they'll probably have that range of motion and stability from like a lifelong perspective instead of just in this smaller pocket of like one practice at a time. I think ideally we want to move our bodies to like, well, until I'm in the ground. So like, yeah. I want to be, I, I care more about like hip stability and not being 60 and falling and hurting myself and things like that. And so I look at mobility and FRC as like, it's preventative um, measures and it's a way to like ensure, not ensure, but take care of yourself from the ground up instead of looking at it on the other end and thinking oh now i need to do rehab it's kind of like prehab all the time what do you feel that you, you said you talked about the why there like what do you think most people are thinking when they practice asana as in do you think it's just about the making of the shape initially or just about this is a stretching class i need to stretch my body what what do you think is in the average student's mind when they practice asana that's a good question. I think that they have no idea what's in their minds. I don't think I knew what was in my mind at first, too. I think a lot of it, I think we're so trained to emulate and to do it right. And maybe this is like a very, you know, again, like Western, I am a woman who's spent their whole life in, you know, like public facing things and like in this world of, yeah, tell me how to do it right. I shall do it right. Wanting to people please, wanting to, to you know, exist in that way. So I spent most of my life wanting to do it right wanting not to get in trouble from a teacher, <laughs> maybe wanting a little bit of praise to help me I'm doing it right. And then like want to feel good about it along the way. So I think that more people, whether they know it or not, are just trying to fly under the radar and do it right. Like they just want to go to class and like, tell me I'm doing it right. Am I doing the thing? They, they, that's like the question that no matter how many teacher trainings I run, people are always like, and, and no matter how often I tell people and constantly, it's like, there is no right. My answer to every question is going to be, it depends and tell yes. me more. <laughs> but the, the no matter what they ask, they're like, but am I doing it right? <laughs> Can you watch me do it and tell me I'm doing it right? And I think that's what a lot of us want is approval and validation and connection and belonging. And so doing it right is this version of like, do I belong here? Can I be here? Is this okay? And we like need that. And we want that in our soul to be told that we belong and we're seen and it's going to be okay. Even if it's just like, you know, in a blank pose. There is a hard balance to be found there, isn't there, between telling people there is no right way, but also trying to make sure they're not like in Chaturanga just dumping in their shoulders. Like I, I yeah. often refer to the idea of kind of alignment principles applied to unique bodies. So like, how do you mm -hmm. deal with that with, it, with your students or your teacher trainees? And they're like, okay, you're saying it depends, but you know, I've had students, well, if everything depends on how can I possibly teach a class? Or this mm -hmm. idea, like I put a post on about like, don't let your students freestyle. 
Like it really annoys me. I mean, when I say freestyle, it's more like if I'm teaching a just a twisted lunge, don't bind because I'm you know I'm taking you to Kundinasana A, which doesn't require internal rotation, for instance. And then everyone, loads of people are going mad about it, saying you should let people do what they want in it's an open class. <laughs> like how would you how would you find that balance, or how would you tell your your teacher trainees how to find that balance? Well, I think we need a lot of. Um we need a lot of like reference to understand why that balance is so important too. Like I, I think all the heavy alignment yoga and like the intensity of it, it gave everyone this false sense of security that if I do it right, if I follow these rules, like, you know, the old Anisar, like universal principles of alignment, if I do these things, then I won't get hurt. Then I'll do it right. Then I'll get my little, you know, ping of energy and everything will be in the right place. But then, you know, people do that. And it's like, this it, it, it still doesn't work or they don't get the pose it's a peak pose class they follow every alignment instruction and they still can't do to divasana it's like yeah man there's so much more beyond what's being sequenced in this class that would matter to whether or not you can do to divasana mm -hmm. or firefly that there's nothing i can say in an hour-long group yoga class that is going to change the proportions of your body or the way things fit together or how much you slept last night or did you eat like there's so many things that it just is what I think in the, it depends like this in between place is that no matter what we're talking about, we kind of always have to adhere to like, I, I, we call it the Goldilocks principle and I know I'm not the only one that calls that, but that's like my golden rule for everything is not too hot, not too cold, just right. And I think it's the same with alignment and instruction or like the free form or super rigidity is that there is a place in between where there's a balance of freedom and structure. And that place is really empowering for students. To say in a certain moment, like, hey, man, we're not revolving today because we're going to go to Kundinyasana too. So I see what you're doing. Love it. Not what's happening today. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a place for that. And then to also say, great, we've, we've made it through this arc. We've done whatever. Now we're going to do spinal waves for three minutes and, like, do whatever feels good. And, like, here's a moment of freedom or, you know, some version of toggling that for people so that it's like, it, this matters here because there's a purpose. And if you choose to ascribe to that purpose, then great, follow me along for the journey. But if you're here, I use my dad as an example all the time. My dad has done yoga his whole forever. And he would come to my workshops or my classes and he'll like do three poses, do crow pose, and then lay down in Shavasana for 45 minutes. And it's like, <laughs> if, that's, if that's what you want out of the class, like, cool. I'm glad, you know, if that's going to make you feel better, happier, nicer to your kids when you get home, like, great. Right. Does you know, he at least put himself in the back corner? Yeah, oh yeah, back He's corner. not front back center. No, no, no. I would throw that. my mom out for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like what you said there and how you dealt with that student that does the other thing. Like I, I try and advise students, like my teacher trainees, how to do this and I really struggle because I've just got a naturally kind of angry face and I just tell people to stop and I can kind of get away <laughs> with just being quite firm. But that was a perfect balance of, I like what you're doing, you said. I like what you're doing, but it's not what we're doing today. I'm going to cut that little section out and, and use that in my yeah. te teacher training resources. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was well delivered. I think, <laughs> I think it's interesting because we all think there's a right way or a purpose for everything. And like in everything, whether it's in yoga or mobility or strength training or deadlifting or back squatting, like we think there's one right way. But like there's just ways that are more or less optimal for whatever your aim is. So like if your intention... Mm like your aim and your intention are aligned, then you can make a choice. But if you don't know what the intention is or the goal, then it's hard to make an informed choice. Like if, if a student, 
you know, if, if you know that we're going there in that class and we say, this might make it tougher to do the thing we're going to do later on. So let's refocus here. Then at least they have an incentive to follow your direction yeah. <laughs> versus like, you know, <clears throat> otherwise the aim of it is hard to know. You could do a pose a million different ways, or you could do an exercise or you could do a, a box step up, but depending on the speed, the velocity, the load, like the height, all of those things will change what the point of it is. It's going to change what tissues it targets. It's going to change what range of motion you're focusing on. It's going to change how difficult it is for you. And so there's like a million levers that you can toggle in any exercise or any movement or any asana. Uh, I think it's tough for students and new teachers to realize which levers they're pulling mm. and how that's impacting their students. And so the it depends conversation to me is like, okay, well, let's look at the ecosystem or let's talk about that instruction that you gave was great, but it makes more sense in this kind of class versus this. And so mm -hmm. how can we make it applicable to like, what's the point? What's the point of what we're doing? And in terms of making that the point, as it were, available to students, I think it's nice for teachers to always do an intro to class, like to set the scene. Say, look, this is what we're, it, it can be the simplest thing in the world, but guys, this is what we're working on today. When I say turn the bicep forwards, this is what I mean. It's because I want you to work these muscles under the arms. So just that, that's setting the scene for class a little bit. Let's work in that direction. Even as brief and general as that, I think really equip students with a why. Because I, you know, if you're teaching a flow class, you don't want to stop and start constantly and explain concepts. You at least need to give some kind of rationale at the beginning while people are looking at you and making eye contact yes then when someone yes. is trying to bind later on and they've got their stress and the sweats in their eyes you know you're not going to teach an intellectual concept at that point no i mean there's definitely a difference too in class between like teaching moments and guiding moments and in the guiding moments like in the flow of things like people can't hear you and like they, they can, they're only going to hear a fraction of what you say you're instructing so it is really about, I think about like choosing your battles too. Like, when do I want to introduce this? How much? How can I like sneak it in a little bit and like make sure I dot my I's and cross my T's without necessarily opening every class and being like, today we're doing splits. In which case, then I think we get the opposite effect with students where then their brains start going, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Mm. Like, I can't do splits. I don't want to do this. And they start like riling it up in their head and then they're not open to the experience. So it's like that, you know. We kind of like sneak it in. It's like putting vegetables, like spinach in a smoothie. So like, they, you know what I mean? Like they don't know it's in there, but they're going to get to it. So and it's kinda, and I think the worst thing you can do is tell people in advance what the class is about. Like, like they, oh, the theme of this week is Hanumanasana. Like, no, I, I'm not going to class. If I read that, you, yeah, won't, see, like, you, won't, you won't see me. <laughs> yeah. Swinging about now to you opened a studio. You opened a studio, you own a studio. Like at what point did you decide, you know what, you want to settle, settle down in one place and not move around, not teach in other studios? What made you think, you know what, I want a place to call my own and a place to kind of call home-ish? You know, I don't know if I ever really made that decision. It just kind of happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the first studio that uh, I opened with my uh, teacher partner, Patrick, was in Los Angeles. So we were living in LA at the time. And we had been nomadic, like, you know, just traveling, doing workshops, kind of like on the circuit, if you want to call it that for years. And it was lovely and expansive and was such a good opportunity to connect with so many amazing people and like get to be in studios and feel what communities are like in different places. Mm -hmm. Like one thing I think that made such a difference opening a studio after all those experiences was 
I would go to the most beautiful studios in the world, like just aesthetically jaw dropping. And the community would be down in the tank. And then you go to like the little hole in the wall studio and it'd be like one room. And it, the community was like the best you'd ever walked into. So it was this chance to kind of gather all this data about what's it, what does it mean to run a good studio? What does it mean to hold community and space for people and what feels good and what feels excessive and what's realistic and what's important. And so there was all that always like in the back of my head and I'm a bit of a control freak. So I always kind of wanted to like have my own space where I could run the classes I wanted or run the trainings when we wanted or, you know, change the decor. Like couldn't walk into any more power yoga studios with bright orange walls and things like that. I was like, I got to feel like at ease somewhere. And so it was always in there, but we were in Los Angeles at the time and we had a teacher training that we had booked in Los Angeles and it was sold out. And we had nowhere to host it. We didn't have our studio partnership fell through and we were like, hey, we have 40 people coming in two months and we have nowhere for them to go. And found a little studio on Craigslist down the street from our house in East Los Angeles. And it was an old star art studio. And I was like, okay, we'll take it. And we literally laid the floors and, you know, transformed it. And it was great. And we ran, we had that studio for two years before we decided to have a kid. And at that time we were like, we, we need grandparents. We need help. So we <laughs> closed the LA studio, moved back to Seattle and reopened here, which is where we're both from. And we kind of always wanted to at least, you know, maybe have both or be back and forth. So then we reopened here and we've been, uh, open ever since, and, you know, commune has been kind of, it's been great here. What, what lessons, so you, you traveled the world looking at different studios, like what, what are the main takeaways you got from seeing other space? Is there anything that makes you think actually you, you thought I want that in my studio or not? Like yeah. I, I, I want an OM symbol. That's the key to creating community. You know, I think one, things that I took away from studios that had really great community and students that were really engaged, which was always a priority. Like I started the yoga practice, like I said, in college. So I started practicing when I was 20 and I started teaching when I was 24, I think. And so I was always really young in the game. Like I always felt young and like there weren't a lot of, especially at that time, yoga without social media, there wasn't as much like visibility. So I was always looking for like-minded people that wanted to do it, that were really enthusiastic, that were stoked about it, and that just was hard to find. And so looking at the different studios and saying like, how do we just bring enough people that are also fucking jazzed about the practice? Like people who want to show up and work hard and sweat and not even like work hard physically, but like they just want to show up and they want to practice. Like this is a part of their life. It's not just a like transactional experience. And so I was always trying to find that just how I ended up teaching on the internet for so long. Can't find it in real life. Got to go to YouTube. But like uh, when we go to studios, looking around and seeing, okay, who's actually showing up on these weekend workshops? Or if I go take a class on a Wednesday before we teach a weekend full of workshops, like what are those classes like? What's a 6 p.m. class like at the studio? And it was always the studios that were easy for people to get to. So like mm. more convenient, even suburby type studios that you would think are like kind of strip mall hole in the wall. People go, they can go after work, they can park. It makes it easy for yoga to be a part of their life, for the studio to be like a fixture in their routine. And that's one thing that I think gets overlooked when we see these big, beautiful spa build outs that like, if you can't be a part of someone's life in an accessible way, then it doesn't matter how nice your studio is or how good the yoga you teach is. Because if people can't show up, if it's too hard for them to get away from their kids or you know go between their already really chaotic, busy, high demand lives, then they just, even if they want to be a part of it, they can't. So you have to make yourself accessible from a location perspective, from a pricing perspective, 
just from like an offerings perspective. It's it's hard, isn't it? I think for studios, studios naturally want to grow, and growth normally means bigger spaces more beautiful spaces and the bigger the space is the more on your schedule the more on your schedule the more random collections of students you have then the more studios you have the more people travel between so everything like so i, I teach at a studio called tri yoga uh, in london massive studio and i love it so much but it is slightly harder to build community there because it's so big and there's so many classes and so many styles and yeah. so many different locations uh it's possible and you know, I love my students there, but it's harder. Whereas, yeah, I've taught in some holes in the walls that are just in residential areas that can only fit 20 people in, but they're always super busy. And, uh, you know, at the moment, post-COVID, some of those are the ones that are doing really well because everyone just lives around the corner. They just walk downstairs or around the corner and meet their friends at the studio that has three classes on per day. <laughs> uh, and that's uh, and that's it. But it's, uh, it's a hard balance. How has it been for you post-COVID? Because in the UK, lots closed down during covid like so many places have closed down you okay <laughs> we have the same we, we're okay we've had the same here though in the city a lot of people um you know i'm in seattle and covid was very um long and serious here not that it wasn't otherwise but they took it very seriously and were shut down for a long time and we just decided during covid my daughter was six months old six months old when covid hit and we were traveling in Australia teaching and it was like all of a sudden it was like, oh shit, got to get on a flight, got to get back, like all these things. And when we shut the studio down, we really just decided like, we're not going to reopen until it feels okay. Because the idea that like breathing in a room together and we'll just do it with masks doesn't make mm. any sense. Like that's what kind of community, what kind of pranayama are we doing? What kind of message are we sending? So we were closed most of COVID. We were closed for almost two straight years. And we just moved everything online. We, I feel really lucky that I had been teaching. I taught for what was a company called Cody, and then they got bought out by Allo. Um, so I've been teaching on Allo Moves. I've been teaching on YouTube. I've been putting videos on that have since been deleted um, on Facebook and things for years, for a decade. So I really, was really comfortable. So I felt really lucky to be able to be like, okay, pivot. Close the studio. We'll turn the studio into a production facility. We'll put the lights up. We'll do that. And, you know, let's take this 10 years of people we've met all across the world and all this great travel time and maybe we can finally reconnect with them and we can do it every day in class online so it actually in a weird way like it is given me a lot of opportunity to stay connected with students that i otherwise wouldn't get to see as much especially having a new baby like i could go teach with a six-month-old and you know nurse before right before i teach mm -hmm. and then go teach the class and then jump back out and get to connect with students that otherwise you know i would have probably not been back on the road and seen anyone for years so um, it was a weird blessing for like my workflow and my ability to stay engaged during that tough time. Yeah, it's a weird one. It's, some people have really capitalized on it. Some people have, haven't. Like my, my, one of my main teachers, Jason Crandall, who I work with, he really capitalized on it. <laughs> like he was yes, absolutely immediately. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. and he just pushed out like hundreds of courses. And put, like, I think before anyone else had a 200 hour, 300 hour online training there in amazing quality because he's like a perfectionist. Yeah, he got stuff out there. ASAP, whereas I was just busy painting our cottage. I was like, okay, this is, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think this is the time for doing yoga. I think this is the time for painting and gardening. And <laughs> Oh my God. I was so jealous. I was, you know, I was also postpartum and it was hard. And uh, we were, I was traveling with Harvey when she was six weeks old, teaching workshops. I was literally breastfeeding and leading class at the same time, or like leading a PowerPoint oh lecture with a baby on my boob. Like just 
And I was like, I'll just do it because what other choice do I have? We don't have paid time off as yoga teachers, got to do it. And so the ability to move it online for me was such a like powerful way to be like, I can still be me. Hmm. I am a skilled teacher. I am a person. I am Carling. And like, I can do that during nap time. And that was an amazing, amazing, liberating thing that I feel like uh, made this side of business as a parent way more sustainable, even though it's hard because I was during COVID and people were making sourdough and painting their houses. I was like, well, that's not fair. Hmm. I, have a t- I have a tiny child in the business. <laughs> but it was a very empowering thing to be like, oh, I can figure out a way to carve out my own space and do this. And, you know, I dropped my contracts with Aloe and the other companies because they weren't willing to, you know, be accommodating during this time at all. And it actually felt really good to be like, fine, I'll, we'll, I'll do my own thing. And like, as, a new, you, as a new mother, you spoke to something then saying kind of what you almost you almost lost part of who you were in yourself, but then being online enabled you to find that. Yeah, so how, like I can't, I'm not, I'm not a new mom. Holly's a new mom. I wish Holly was here to have this discussion with you. But I, I think that's something that a lot of new mothers experience, especially ones that are self-employed, at this loss of identity. And there's, there's lots of books out there about time management and the like, but a lot of them, you know, don't factor in what happens if your babysitter goes missing or what happens if... Mm-hmm. Your ba- like as 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 tonight. So for listeners, it was Holly was supposed to be here tonight, but our little Sonny wouldn't go to sleep. Uh, bless him, <laughs> and didn't didn't fancy sleeping tonight. So like, how do you? Can you speak? I guess two questions there, two layers. One is any advice for new mothers in terms of them helping find their own identity again, and then I guess the next question is how do you manage your time as a new mo- well newish mother, studio owner, recording studio manager. Uh, (laughs) teacher trainer etc etc doula Uh, I think okay so the best advice that I ever got from someone and I wish I knew who I should have screenshot it's probably just some lovely person that sent me a nice DM when I was you know in the middle of freaking out about something but they said with new babes go easy on them they're new here and that simple thing really changed my perspective not just on being a new mother and like looking at your sweet child that you're also like at 4am what the fuck did I do to my life like I blew this up this is really hard and I don't know I don't know what to do but it took me from looking at them in that way and saying like okay they're up all night they're freaking out they want connection they don't know what's going on they were like a, a warm mermaid in your belly a second ago and now they're outside and they're confused and so they need patience but then I finally figured out how to apply that to myself and it's like I I'm new here. I'm a new mom. I'm a different person. I have to go easy on myself in the way that's like the demands of old, they don't exist anymore. There is no more like time management handbook, four hour work week for a new parent, like mother or father. It's not, it's so, I think it's so mean to tell parents that, or you listen to a Huberman lab and, and they're like, make sure you get eight hours of sleep and sunlight in your eyes. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, man, I'm just trying to take a shower. Like, <laughs> like it's a lot. And I think that this idea of going easy on ourselves and acknowledging that like this season of life is different and it's a container that deserves respect and it deserves a different kind of reverence that isn't like you drop all the other things you want in your life because that's an an impossible task too but it is saying like okay in this moment here's what i can do and here's how i can be present for my kid and not lose my mind and feel like there's a purpose in my life that is 
yes, your child, but coming back to that place that like, what's the purpose for me? What is it going to mean to go easy on myself today to make me feel like that's even possible? Mm. Because I mean, I, I can't speak to the experience like in the kind of father archetype of things, but in this like transition from maiden to mother and then maybe later to crone, like there's this transition from maiden to mother that is so confusingly natural and deeply terrifying because it's like rejecting everything you've ever known with your life, everything you've worked for. And suddenly it's like, just kidding, it's not about you. And so there's this really existential crisis that comes into like, how do I try to bridge the gap, like have a foot in both worlds, like, you know, where the veil's real thin. Um, and I think it's, it's, there is no like one way to do it. You just figure out how to exist. And then you know that it's always going to change. Like mm. they're going to, you know, they're going to stay up all night and fuck with your podcast plans. And then <laughs> when they're three, they're going to like not want to put on the shoes you want. And they're going to, you put the bow in their hair wrong. It's going to fuck with your plans. Like that's the rest of life. There's no other thing besides to just accept it. Like you go easy on them and then you go easy on yourself. If your reactions aren't what you wanted them to be. It's tough. And I guess community comes in as well there in that being in a community and having a community around you to support is super valuable mm -hmm. to, to get you through all these stages is whether that be like, yeah. you, like you, you did as we did we moved back well not to where i'm from but where holly's from just so we we had friends or her friends mm -hmm. and family nearby just to to babysit and like but super valuable to have that that whole adage that it takes a village to raise a child is just so true and you realize that now yes and you know it's hard because i think when you first have a kid like you're a little boy is what 14 weeks is yeah that yeah you're still in that phase too, where I think there's times when you're like, okay, well, when's the village going to show up? Where's the village? <laughs> like, I'm ready. <laughs> like, where's the village? And it's, I think that especially over the last few years, there's a lot of um, COVID parents that really lost out on the opportunity to have a village. And I think that there's something very special about the online community during that time that for me also really saved me in like, you know, you're laying upstairs with your little one trying to get them to go to sleep. And, you know, if you know, if you roll away, they're going to wake up. And so feeling like you're not the only parent up in the middle of the night, doom scrolling or listening to a podcast or like that there's other people on that same trajectory as you that are like, you're all in it together makes a big difference. I think the most powerful time in my entire time on social media was being a new parent and getting DMs from other moms and other parents or you know asking for help and saying i don't know how to handle this what's the feedback or having people send you studies and product recommendations like that community can exist outside of your immediate if you don't have access to it or if you don't have a parent or a family that's like mm. super helpful i know i mean oh, we would all love to have like aunts and grandmas and sissies to come take care of everyone but i know not all of us have as much physical support yeah so sometimes just having that connection makes a huge difference in your mental state yeah i've been amazed to say because you know, holly my wife you know she's sound healing sound journeying uh lots of female stuff like female exclusive stuff and i was just amazed to see how women kind of supported each other you know holly had a miscarriage and an ectopic pregnancy and just, and then Holly did womb healing and then supported lots of other women through you know through their their process and just like this overwhelming like community and support developed from that and I think on social media you can re you you can really have a profound effect on people you know I, I, social media can be used badly <laughs> but it can be used sure, really absolutely. magically as well and mm -hmm. beautiful things can come of it 
And if you like, and my view is if, if someone brings some hate, just delete and block and get rid of them. <laughs> but you had, you had a, I read something on your social media, maybe two to maybe two weeks ago, you were saying that, what was it? What were you saying that you were struggling to know what to put on there? Like, was it, were you going to put personal stuff on there, work stuff? I'm butchering whatever that topic was, but I remember. No, I know, I know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I was having, well, I think I've always treated social media as just like, there was a lot, I've put a lot of yoga stuff on the internet over the years, teaching and, you know, doing all of that. But I've also always treated it as like, it's just me. I'm not going to change. Like I, you know, if I feel a way about a political situation, I am going to talk about it. I'm going to post about it. Like I don't have much fear around like losing followers, all that. Mm -hmm. I just want community and people that want to be there and have conversations. And I want to be around people that are curious and I want to follow people who teach me things. And, you know, that's what I like to use it for. But I've definitely since the transition from, you know, uh, just an adult who teaches yoga and has a career on the internet to a mother to having this baby. And then you have a conversation about consent with kids on the internet and then transitioning into like, you know, more of a, uh, I do a lot of the business admin side of the studio because it's, you know, some part of it that I really like. And then separating from Patrick, who is still my bestie, best like life soulmate, but we're not romantically together anymore. And now in this new phase of like Carling, who's a, a person, a separate person <laughs> and not necessarily just like half of a duo or someone else's like behind the scenes kind of person. I've definitely watched a, a shift in like, how do I want to show up here? Like, what do I, what do I feel is not just like beneficial to the community, but also like, it's me. It's just like what I like. It's just like funny stuff. I love to speak in language of memes and gifs and like sending people links and podcasts and things like that. So I like the more casual avenue. Um, but that's hard to navigate when some people are there looking to you as just a, like, this is a professional, this is a yoga account. And it's like, no man, it's just a person. And I, that's what I do. But this mm-hmm. is also like my family and my daughter and my life and, you know, the things I like. But the beauty is you're not the only yoga teacher in the village, are you? That, that's what I think you can find. No. Your, you can find your niche. And people, yeah. you say Nietzsche in America, don't you? You can find, you can find your niche and you just do your thing. And my view is you you don't need that many people to really like you to have a profound effect on the world. No, uh, you just need people. You need to trust each other and feel like you've got resources and like want to have conversations. The rest, uh, everything. Numbers is so much less about volume and much more. It's like way less, what is it, less quantity and way more quality and it, i've done i've done a bit like kind of bit of stalking like looking at your photos and i've noticed like so many of the women that i know that in my life that want to work hard and are kind of strong-minded and independent and kind of honest and humble all the kind of those, those good qualities loads of them are like, are like following you and liking all your stuff so you're you're attracting a good crowd like you're t- you're you're attracting a lot of the women that i found really inspirational in my life so you, you've built, oh, you've built something nicer. That's nice to hear. You know, it's funny uh, for someone, like I said, who grew up cheerleading and all these things that are like barely, they seem very like female dominant uh, and women centric. Um, I don't think I really valued in, in like a visceral way the how much female or, you know, female identifying friendship and community and that camaraderie really, really matters. Mm. Like there's something different about 
And this is not to, you know, speak down on anyone that chooses to not have children or can't have them or their life hasn't lined up in that way. This is not about that. But there is something very visceral about when you look at someone, you run into a friend that's just had a child or they have a new kid, and you can just see in each other's eyes that like, oh man, it's been a day. We're in it together. I've got you. I see you. Like, you don't have to explain a word to me. Or having those conversations and feeling like there's this just like transmission. There's something really powerful and like coddling to your heart and cathartic about being in that company or other people that like to, that are working hard and they're, you know, busting their butts. There's something cathartic about that connection that I think um, really matters to make it feel like what, what you're doing or what you're going through has purpose. We're going to do some little quick fires now, if that's okay. But before sure. we do some little quick fire questions, is there anything you want to talk about that you have going on at the moment? Uh, anything you want to advertise? Got a lot going on all the time. That's very chaotic over here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I so I kind of always have a rotating bout of teacher trainings going on. So I do teacher training through my yoga school, Awakening Yoga Academy, and we have online programs all the time. We've got mobility stuff that's on demand, a forty-hour program. We've got an advanced Asana one, which, like you know, talk about foot behind the head shit. <laughs> I've got a, a long course on that, and then a sequencing one that is coming up in. January and those are all 300 advanced courses plus 200 hours on demand and then just kind of on the road teaching and traveling you know either at the studio here in Seattle at Kami Yoga or um, teaching in Manchester and doing a retreat um, kind of in the countryside in the UK in September so you know just always always on the teaching rotation whether it's online where is your retreat in the UK is it in the north of England I'm trying to sort out a spot right now. I've got a couple different options, but I just want to pull together a smaller um, women's group. I do this mentorship called Awakening Archetypes, and it's a lot more about it's just this sort of like embodiment of how we do our sacred work and how we exist to, you know, for more than just the um, production of capitalism, <laughs> but how do we mitigate that and, you know, the want to have purpose in our lives. So it is a little bit more of like a restorative self-exploration type retreat. Our, ba- our baby's welcome. Can, Ooh, can Holly come? Yeah, babies are welcome. You'll have lots of arms to hold the babies. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And then Manchester, that's a, well, it's at the location space at the mill, but it's with Yoga Manchester, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In September. Yeah, second or third week in September. And just so well, just a little shout out to me. I'm in Manchester, January. If anyone is in Manchester, at space at the mill as well. <laughs> All the workshops at Manchester. <laughs> come it's, it's, have you been to Manchester before? No, I have a couple students over the years. That every time I've been in Daba, they're like, you have to come to Manchester. Yeah, so I'm really excited. To it's a great go. city. It's really, I'm from Birmingham, which is the second biggest city in the UK. But really, I think Manchester would be classed as the second city. Because it's mm-hmm. far enough from London that to have really created its own identity and own culture and have all of its like own stuff going on. Like it's a, it's a cool place. It's a cool place. Uh, and then like little quick fires, right? What is sacred for you? Interpret that however you want. But what is sacred for you? I think time. I mean, I think time is sacred for all of us. But for me, I really revel in like, having my own separate alone time, like being able to say, like, I'm not, I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to this, I'm not going to that. And I just want to like have a personal agency over a, an hour or two a day. And that might be a, a parent thing, but like just that sacred, like even if it's one hour to move and meditate or to go to the gym and throw some heavy shit around, like I need one hour 
of like it's for me and that that's my big one is there any app or computer program that you're like in love with at the moment or that has like helped your life in some way in the last six months or year okay i have two so one is our studio app for online classes for coming. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> so you can literally do that. Subtle plug. Um, two is this program called Notion. I don't know if you use Notion. Never know. But know. Notion is like this wild. It's like a mix of like a, a website builder and Excel. It's like Excel on steroids. And I love like planning and lists and Excel and organizing and all of that detail. And it is so robust. You can build anything. You can build databases. You can build courses. I do all my editorial calendars in it. I communicate with my team. It's fucking great. Notion. N-O-T-I-O-N. Notion. Yeah. N-O-T-I-O-N. Yeah. Notion. And it's fucking amazing. It's great. Oh, I need to look at that. Okay, cool. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. Next one. Is there any quote motto whatever that gets you going Hmm. you know i don't know if there's any one quote that gets me going this is what i do when i need inspiration like quote mantra stuff is i am a i'm a book hoarder so i have a lot a lot of books like i love i'll go to a bookstore in every city and i will fill my suitcase very stupidly with heavy books and so (laughs) i will just like and I don't always read them uh, or I have like 10 audiobooks going at once and I just like jump between topics. I'm like, I'm like from whatever, comics to yoga anatomy to philosophy, like all over the place. But I will just sit down every morning. I sit down and I open a book. I don't, any book off my bookshelf and I open to a page and I read whether it's a paragraph or a couple pages and I let that be whatever might kind of like soak in kind of like pulling a tarot card Mm. for my day or for my meditation or if i need a little inspiration and just kind of see what shows up so i try to pull something different i suppose like every single day whatever it is have you do you use a kindle at all Mm -mm. oh that was a kind of (laughs) no no i just i have one i have one and i have tried and it's been dead and it's on my shelf forever um and traveling, it would make way more sense. This, I'd listen to audiobooks a they're lot. They're game changers. Like, I, if you get into yeah. that, I've had four Kindles and I keep putting, giving it away, then banging you, banging you. Because I found myself, maybe like you, about buying books and like just assuming I would absorb the information via osmosis or something. Just having them near me, I would absorb mm-hmm. it. But then I then I bought a Kindle again for the fourth time. But now I'm reading so much now, thanks to that Kindle. And oh, there's a, there's cool. a, one of my friends just the other day told me about this app slash web service where you can kind of put in your Kindle access password and it will email you one of your highlights because you can highlight in it. You can highlight a paragraph. Oh, a that's cool. And it will send one a day. You like pick one from random and uh, it sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah, I literally just, my books have like sticky notes and highlights and pages flagged. But I also do think the osmosis thing I do think it's a little bit true. Maybe it's wishful thinking, <laughs> but I like books as decor, right? It's like, it's a part of you. It's what you like. It's your interest. It's like, I feel like I think I get worried with a Kindle that I'll forget that I have all this cool stuff as opposed to like sitting on my couch and thinking, should I turn on the TV or, oh shit, I never started that book. Like, and then, you know, picking up that. Amazing. So I like them as like a, a, a decor item also. And then a final question. If you had another hour per day, like what would you what would you do with that hour? What would you like to do more of in your life that you currently don't do? You know, I feel like I'm pretty good at packing it all in right now, but Amazing. I think I would I think I would have one more hour 
of unobstructed time with my daughter, like not where I have to work. Cause this it makes me off, like kind of flushed to say it. Cause I feel I struggle with the guilt of it a lot is like owning your own business and being self-employed with a kid is it's that pressure of like, you could always be working. And so it's really easy to let that permeate into your time with them. And when they're really little, they don't know, right. They can't tell that you're scrolling on the other side mm. or sending an email, but she's at the age now where she's really viscerally like, mom, why are you working right now? Why are you on your mm. phone? And it's like, fuck, I got to put this, I got to put this class up. I have to finish this edit. Someone sent me an email or like call and she so sweetly will look me in the eye and she'll say, I want all the attention. Mm. And it's like, God, to be able to ask for what you need in that like clear of like, okay, I hear you. You you want all the attention and I want to give it to you. And I think if I had one hour to just like, to not, where like, I don't, to somehow like, whatever eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, splice or severance, splice the brain <laughs> work out of me and be like, you're not going to think about that right now. And instead you're just going to like, whatever she wants to do. Cause there's like nothing better than being with them when they just like are all in and they love, they like, they look to you for everything and that's so special and i just mm. like i don't want to forget that i don't want to miss it so i would beautiful. just i'd severance my brain off and just dedicate it i think they do know from an early age as well like sonny's only 14 weeks but when we're not looking at him he he's not happy like he can mm -hmm. tell when you're not he, he you know, babies really start to focus on faces don't they and they can tell you know they find comfort knowing there's a face nearby and i think they can tell when they're not being yeah. watched and when you are looking at a device. Yeah. And it's, there's so much just the closeness. Everyone has a different philosophy, but like when they're so young and there's so much focus on like, get them to sleep in their own room, get them in their own bed, all stuff. It's like, they just want to touch and be connected because mm -hmm. they don't, they don't even know they're not a part of you anymore. Like, so the idea that it's very confusing to be like, you could be physically touching them, but so mentally somewhere else mm -hmm. is really, I think it, it wouldn't even make sense to them because they don't even know how to be that way. They're, they're all in. So sometimes it, it feels so confusing to know that like we as adults can make a choice to not be all in, whereas they, they can't make that choice. They're always all in. That's like the coolest mm. thing about that. Could we could have a whole other conversation on that and go like all the Gabe Marte stuff. I love him. Yeah. Oh, so good. Like we're not, we're, we're not in the camp of making our life easy. We're like short-term gain for long-term cost. We want to make sure that we are in all we can. We have him in our bedroom for as long as we can, et cetera, et cetera. And that, of course, in the short term, makes life harder. Yeah, it does. But we'll hopefully make mm -hmm. him a more complete, happy, content human being. That's. A <laughs> I think Harvey's pretty good examples of that. We've been in gentle parenting attachment stuff forever with her, and I, she's very independent. They're all different, but like, I feel like on this end, I finally feel when I watch her do the affirmations. When I watch how she, I was upset the other day just because it's hard to be a single mom. It's hard to run a business. I'm tired. And I was having a hard time. And she came and gave me a hug. Mm -hmm. She put her head on me. And she literally said, I've got you. Which I realized, oh. I take her I've got you. Uh-huh. I say, I've got you. I hear you. Like if she says, I hear you. I hear you. I see you. She put her head on my shoulder and she said, I've got you. And she put her and she stroked my head. And I thought, oh, fuck, oh it God, works. Like, look at her. It's working. And it's like, you know, that's the thing. That's what that's oh, like. I would, that's I the would, yoga, I would yoga. be crying if that happened. I would be oh, in fits of tears. <laughs> and it's such a reality check. You're like, whatever I was upset about, it doesn't matter. Because mm. you just did that to me. Because she's got There's you. nothing better. <laughs> yeah, because she's got me. What else can I ask for in life? There's nothing better. Oh, beautiful. Where can people find you? Mm. At website, etc. Or physically? Physically. So you can find me if you're ever in Seattle at Commune Yoga. It's the studio here. 
Um, and you can find all of my teachings on communyoga.com with a whole online studio. There's hundreds of classes. There's a new class every single day. There's the app you can download. Um, if you want to learn from me, you can find me at awakeningyogaacademy.com. Got lots of courses, continue education. Um, I'm a big nerd and I like to talk. So online courses are my jam. <laughs> and Instagram. Um, Instagram, yeah, at Carling Nicole. And I just started the TikTok journey, but man, that's a lot. So oh, it's there, but it's, it's there's a I lot going on. I can't on do it. There. I can't. I cannot <laughs> remotely be bothered with that. I feel like I'm too old. I, I feel old, but it's a little bit freeing. I don't have any audience there yet. There's no followers. I'm just throwing spaghetti at the wall. And, you know, so we'll see how it goes. I can't, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> it's been uh, lovely, lovely to chat. So lovely to chat. I'm glad we connected.